Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking regulating small providers, governance, student finance and more. It's all coming up. It is the big tension, but um, when you start to look at the changing expectations of, um, you know, research, innovation, the student experience, you know, obviously I do a lot of digital innovation, you know, looking at the metaverse, simulation, HoloLens technologies, all of those kinds of you know, sort of big innovations, you know, there could be a budget line for that. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to open the red box of policy this week are three fabulous guests as always. In Bournemouth, it's Debbie Holly, Professor of Learning Innovation at Bournemouth University. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week, um, we've launched the National Teaching Fellowship National Set of Series of Webinars. And I worked with a a whole group of wonderful educators on Tuesday. And 40 minutes south of Alicante, it's Ursula Kelly, Director of Viewforth Consulting. Ursula, your heart of the week, please. Well, it's been quite a quiet week, except I was very pleased to note that this is currently legal pro bono week. Um, And as you know, a lot of universities have um, pro bono law clinics. And really, BBC Radio Ulster ran a a nice piece on the University of Ulster Law Clinic. Um, And I was particularly pleased that they had picked up on some of our earlier work where we had actually studied um, the the value of the very substantial 3.2 million um, value of the pro bono work done by university staff throughout throughout the UK. And 25 minutes south-southwest of Gloucester, it's David Kernahan or DK2 and me, acting editor of Wonky. Uh, DK, your highlight of the week, please. So I've spent the weekend teaching my 15-year-old the correct way to rig stage lights onto a truss. I'm now sitting at my desk. I'm looking at a rig of about 12 different lights of various sorts, all pointed at me. So Every time I do an in-house wonky meeting, the uh, production in terms of lightning is absolutely spot on. Very illuminating. Uh, Now, we start the week with regulation and small providers. Uh, DK, talk us through what this report is about. So this has been like a rising trend throughout the last few weeks. People are really starting to speak out about what they see as the deficiencies of the Office for Students approach to uh, regulation. Uh, this week, we've had um, a report from uh, Guild HE, and also on the site on Wonky, we had a piece from Sophie McCarthy at IHE, and they both make largely the same points, how um, the idea of regulating by data, having lots of conditions, changing them regularly, having a pile of consultations that you then occasionally look at the responses as, that uh, disproportionately affects small and specialist providers. They're more likely to experience the effect of having small amounts of data, so the uh, changes in the activity, but few students or graduates ha- causes a big shift in the institution. They're more subject 
to uh, subject-based effects and industry-based expense because they uh, tend to be specialists and specialize in getting graduates in to one particular industry. Um, and I mean, I mean, most of all, it's an issue we've been over on the site several times. They simply don't have the capacity to deal with whatever it is the office of students would like them to do this week. They're not the kind of place that's got a large regulatory compliance team or a big um, registry on a number of occasions. It's often just kind of one or two people that suddenly have to deal with a whole new load of responsibilities and things that they need to be getting on with. So it does feel like we've seen critiques of this from Universities UK in recent weeks as well. So it feels like this is all somewhat coming to a head. And I'm really interested in what this means for the future of regulation in England. So there's there's lots here. I think... Um... Uh, so, I mean, RFS would probably say that it isn't a one size fits all approach. So, I mean, um, and, and, you know, is it the case that small and special providers are always going to feel kind of left out and misunderstood or, um, or is there, you know, is there a real case to answer here? Well, uh, to be honest, I'm actually, I was finding it quite fascinating that, um, how, how, how blunt they were being about the deficiencies within, within the OFS and, and the impact it was having on, on, on institutions. Um, I think part of the issue is is that the sector has become so diverse, um, and definitely one size can't fit all, uh, and that's I think that's that's actually contributing to a lot of the difficulties facing the sector as a whole. For me, I was just thinking a little bit about regulation, and mostly when we talk about regulation, everybody kinds of groans, and I thought it's something about just stepping back. And just thinking about what does good regulation look like? And there are some really great examples of fantastic regulation that works. And so what would those key characteristics and principles look like for good regulation? And I think that's where maybe the conversation needs to start. I was very interested in Guild HE and the way in which they identified the challenges they're facing. It's very difficult to measure value sets. And a lot of these small providers, that's where they really, really, really drive that passion for learning. So how can their strapline, you know, distinction and diversity, how can that play out where you're just looking at data, the cost of data, and also the bias inherent in the data sets. DK, are there there actually solid proposals for what OFS could do to to better recognise smaller special providers or independent providers? Uh, So uh, there's some interesting responses in the Guild HE consultation. They make a few recommendations. There's the idea every time OFS comes up with a new condition of regulation, they need to get rid of one, which is a move that we've seen from lots of deregulatory approaches in other areas of government. But the big thing they're pushing on is compliance with the regulatory code. Now, there is a set of rules for regulators to regulate. It's not particularly well, it's not particularly well enforced, it's not particularly well known, but it's called the regulatory code. I mean, well, well, uh, I mean, one of the things they particularly ask for in that is that, I mean, regulators are meant to be able to take the temperature of the people that they are regulating to think, okay, I mean, based on the people we interact with, are we doing a good job, a useful job? Are we pushing them in the right direction? And that this has not 
actually happened. Uh, this has been a criticism of the OFS from the National Audit Office, from the, the Public Accounts Committee, that they don't actually survey the people they regulate and say, look, are there problems here that we could fix? Because as um, Debbie says, there are a bunch of problems here in a bunch of different situations. And I mean, really, the OFS needs to be in listening mode. It needs to be listening to these individual providers and saying, okay, this thing that you think works for everybody, it doesn't work for us. And here's the reason it doesn't work for us. And then they can move forward. Uh, because OFS isn't collecting that information, it makes it really hard to do that. The other thing they ask for is something that will be um, no surprise to avid wonky readers, um, an independent review of the OFS in line with the forthcoming post-legislative um, review of the Higher Education and Research Act after a piece of legislation is passed. A few years later, the department that has actually passed it has to write a little memo about it and send it to the appropriate select committee to say, okay, these are the bits we think have worked. These are the bits we think haven't worked. There's been a lot of sector interest in what the DfE are going to say about the Higher Education and Research Act of 2017. This is uh, is mainly because a number of subsequent acts have actually modified the uh, provisions in there and the stuff in the act that is not being done. There's stuff that's being done, but not in the expected way. So uh, depending on who we get as um, education committee chair, now that Robert Halfen has moved across to um, DFE, and at the moment one possibility is, and I kid you not here, people, one possibility is... Jonathan Gullis, which I'm just like, what? Why? How? Um, the, if we get a good chair in there, they can uh, elect to run a full inquiry into the workings of the Higher Education and Research Act. And it would be expected that a proper look at the way OFS is doing what it's doing would sit within that. And I think a good regulatory code would certainly be looking for 360 examination of the way in which things have been set out. And one thing that always concerns me is I just feel the student voice is still invisible. I really do. And um, Sophie's piece, you know, absolutely fascinating. She said, it worries me greatly that the experience of students across the independent sector, then what are the expectant, the experience of students in other minority groups? And then if we look at COVID and we look at the, those that were excluded, had poor mental health, had isolation, you know, charities like Student Minds, they're looking at that intersectionality. All these, all these inequalities are still overlapping. Of course, every, uh, provider in being regulated incurs a cost on itself just in complying with what the regulator wants. Um, 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 Guild actually is arguing that this is wildly disproportionate for smaller uh, providers. Um, Is this, um, I mean, does that smell right to you? Well, for a smaller provider, will automatically uh, will su- suffer disproportionately because they don't have the, the 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 infrastructure, and I think that's one of the things they point out. I mean, larger universities can absorb that a little bit. In terms of cost of regulation, you know, of all types, more generally, I think it would be worth considering that the people proposing the regulation are obliged to pay something towards the people being regulated to cover the costs of what they're having to do, and that could could apply across the board with things like you know, we're looking at the ref or CAF or whatever, um, 
that actually that might make the people doing the regulating think more clearly and more precisely about the burdens they're going to have to, they're putting on, on the recipients. Some, some Italian universities are actually sharing data warehouses behind the scenes, you know, so there's a group of them collaborating. You know, surely that kind of principle where perhaps the regulator runs a data warehouse and provides the data would just be so helpful, wouldn't it? I mean, um, OFS has been good at uh, publishing the data it is working with in regulation, often in quite kind of um, completely over-the-top detail, but they do do it, and we should welcome that. Um, a thing I keep hearing from smaller providers with less kind of regulatory compliance resource is that the expectations of uh, data literacy at uh, um, a smaller provider are often kind of v- absolutely vastly inflated. I mean, if you're a larger institution, you've probably got someone like me who can just sit and play with Tableau all day and make nice uh, kind of visualizations that can help people understand the data that is out there. If you're at a smaller provider, as I say, it's just kind of, it's just kind of one person or two per people doing everything. So if you're asking them to get to grips, even with like the ad- advanced features of something like Excel, it is a big like skills gap. And although OFS have done some work in that space to support, uh, providers in gaining those skills. Incidentally, HESA have been doing this for a long time through their liaison team. They do it really, really well. I think there is space for more stuff like that. If we're going to have this kind of technocratic, um, data-driven sheen to regulation, then we need to make sure everybody involved has got the skills to probably deal with it. I, th- I, th- I think you're making a very good point there, David, because um, in smaller organisations of all kinds, trying to actually deal with with the sort of requirements of you know data compliance is is very very difficult and you're right the skill set might not necessarily be there right let's see who's been blogging for us this week QAA's decision to demit the role of designated quality body for England was driven by our need to maintain our place on the European Quality Assurance Register which was incompatible with us operating in a regulatory system that isn't compliant with international best practice In doing this, we acted to protect the international credibility of the UK system as a whole. The effects of English HE not being regulated in a way that's compliant with international norms of good practice might not be immediate. But over time, international stakeholders will start to question whether England is a suitable destination for international students, particularly those who are state-sponsored. And it doesn't take a genius to see the potential ramifications of those international concerns. This is something providers and the government should be alert to. Nevertheless, life post-DQB looks bright for us. We will still be the sector's independent and impartial expert quality body, being vocal and active in our various roles across the four nations of the UK, including overseeing UK-wide sector reference points like the Quality Code. Indeed, without the constraints of the DQB role, our membership offering will be enriched as we explore enhancement above the baseline, as well as offer support to English providers in navigating the quality, policy and regulatory landscape. In the interest of students, QAA will always look beyond the baseline, recognising excellence and highlighting areas for improvement in England, 
across the UK and internationally. Now, there's a couple of new reports out about university governance. Ursula, talk us through them. Well, there's um, two reports, one from HEPI, one from Advance Advance HE, and they're both, I mean, they're both looking at different aspects of of university um, or higher institution, higher education institution governance, Uh, both quite different. Um, The Advance HE report is looking um, in detail at HESA data and analysing the the personal characteristics, as it were, you know, the, the age, sex, ethnicity, nationality of the composition of, of, of governing boards across the entire UK. So they're taking it across the whole UK and trying to say, well, look, um, they suggest that the, the boards aren't perhaps as, as, as diverse in terms of, of board member characteristics as perhaps would be advantageous. Um, there's not, well, there's quite a few women, it would appear, for example. Um, there's still fewer women on boards, um, fewer ethnic minorities, etc. The one of the things about the age, uh, the, the, the characteristics, which is actually a function of looking for experienced people, is that actually there's quite a lot of older people on boards. Um, and if you're looking for experience, that might be a natural, natural point. The, the happy, the HEPI report is more like a, a, a deep dive into the perceptions that, that board members have. HEPI is only looking at English institutions. Um, the, the HEPI report only covers England, largely because the, 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 it would appear to be that they're thinking again of, of the Office for Students and, and having to, you know, English institutions having to sort of report to, to the OFS. Um, so, so they only cover England. But one of the things that did strike me um, is just how much, how, how, how complicated it's becoming it's becoming to be a, a, a board member who would be one I think there's a greater um, expectation of responsibility to the point of liability for board members um, and I think that was what came across to me quite strongly in terms of reading different views however both reports surprised me in the sense that there was it did strike me as being a little bit they can't see the wood for the trees uh, because the purpose, I suppose, is looking at the trees, but neither of them actually address the fundamental point regarding higher education institutions, and that is their actual legal structure as private entities, which there's a lot of comparisons to the public sector, for example, but universities obviously are not public sector. Um and that actually does drive a lot of their requirements. So the role of the governing body, I would have really liked more discussion about what is the actual role of the governing body in the particular status and the particular standing that universities that universities have. The other thing I would have liked to see a little bit more of, which didn't seem to be coming through that much, um, is what is the tension between the governing body, the role of the governing body, uh, in terms of looking after resources, um, financial sustainability, Perhaps compliance with, with external requirements, um, and, you know, the internal, internal sort of academic affairs, because there was very little mention, again, perhaps because you're talking about a very diverse set of institutions, very little mention of, of what's the relationship between the governing body and, for example, in the older universities, you'll have Senate and you'll have, as well as court or council in England. And there didn't seem to be an awful lot of, of discussion about where the limits of the governing body are. Uh, and indeed, some of the perceptions of the governing body members themselves started, they, a few of them started to raise questions about they weren't really quite sure how they were placed in that regard. Uh, I mean, certainly it used to be, um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking mainly of the Scottish system where it's court rather than council. But it was very, there were very, very clear distinctions between the role of the court governing body and the role of Senate. And really, uh, there was a lot of, people had to be very careful not for for the governing body not to start trying to overreach 
into academic affairs. Um, so, so I mean, I, I would like to see a little bit more of that. Having said that, both reports obviously give uh, an interesting insight into different aspects of, of the Ulster governor experience. And I think, Mark, you're actually a, a university governor. Um, perhaps you, so you, you can actually speak from direct experience on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's undeniable, isn't it, that, that the role of governor has got more complicated and um, that's kind of with, uh, you know, alongside the kind of the regulatory environment has got more complicated. And I, I guess, you know, what coming, coming across to me here is just how important it is to induct new governors, how, how important it is to, you know, really find that, that kind of mix of skills. Um, and I think, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I have seen, and not just the governing party I'm on, but I think I've, and I've, I've spoken to many governors, um, of different universities. I think they're often surprised to find just the amount of, of kind of legal and regulatory responsibility that they have. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's not straightforward. It's not, you know, it's not like a small charity or a small business. You know, it is, uh, it's, you know, it's a heavily regulated environment, um, with, with a lot of the onus placed on, um, individual governors and, and the governing body to do things like quality assurance, you know, for example. So, um, no, it's, 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 there, there's, I guess, Mike, I was going to ask Debbie what you think we might start doing um, in order to, you know, in, deepen that kind of skills mix, but also help deepen governing bodies' understanding of the sector and what is happening around universities. I was very interested in the call for actually having formal qualifications for university governors. I'm not sure I go quite as far as that, but um, certainly Advance HE have got some excellent resources and they're, you know, they're advocating for particular policies. Um, so I think there are the resources out there and there's the expertise out there but it's really trying to look at bringing something together and I'm thinking perhaps you could start to map and do some sort of e-portfolio of governing expertise and map the gaps to try and get that more representative um body across your board of governors. Um, also you know there's quite a lot isn't there there about who the governors are, but they do really flag the tensions between elected staff and students on the board and the the kind of internal, external frictions there. So I think that was something that was very, very interesting. But I think it's the invisible thing. You know, we talk a lot about QA. Surely the board ought to be thinking a little bit about QE and improving the student experience as well. Sorry, so I just, I just, I find that very interesting because again, Debbie, where would you see the the borderline between uh, the board getting involved in actual academic matters as opposed to being 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 assured? Being assured that the university is 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 doing the, what you know what the university is actually doing about it all. It is the big tension, but um, when you start to look at the changing expectations of um, you know research, innovation, the student experience, you know obviously I do a lot of digital innovation. You know, looking at the metaverse simulation, Hololens technologies, all of those kinds of you know sort of big innovations you know, there could be a budget line for that and a strategic moving forward of things looking like that. You know, the 
the Americans have got amazing health simulations and can practice really, really complex operations in 3D because they've got a budget line for it for innovation. And obviously with our NHS, we don't. But there are principles and different ways of working that would start to look beyond the data and to push things forward more meaningfully. Debbie highlighted the the, the issue of um, the tension between, you know, maybe elected staff or student representatives on a board, as opposed to uh, maybe the the lay appoint lay appointed members, um, and I can see they they, they explain that they, they go into that and explain that quite clearly because the the um, representative members have to realise that they're not actually in a representative role. It's a very funny, it's a very odd position they're in. Um, but the interesting thing about that, and in fact the conclusions that the Happy Report come to, which are all pretty reasonable. They're actually very similar to the same conclusions that Deering, who we're going to be talking about, came to 25 years ago, because there was a whole section of Deering all about governance. And that issue of that conflict or or tension between um, staff and student members, as opposed to lay members, was also flagged in Deering as well. So, I mean, it's it's like plus a change, you know. (laughs) So there's um, a killer quote in this um, Advanced HE report, right towards the end in the conclusion, um, it remains unclear whether governors from groups typically within a minority on government on governing bodies hold the same level of power and influence as the majority. And that's something that cuts to the heart of all this. In a, a way, you want a governing body to do two things. You want it to be something that looks like the kind of people that have got a stake in the success of the university. So it needs to have students and it needs to have staff and it needs to have people from diverse backgrounds from the local area nationally, all of whom have got an interest in the university being as good as it possibly can be. But you also need a mix of skills. You need people that are interested in audit and and, uh, financial scrutiny. You need people that are interested in learning and teaching and innovation and ideas of the future of the university, where that might be. The board kind of makes the weather for an institution. A good board and a good chair can have a huge impact on the atmosphere within an institution, the way an institution is managed by the executive. So we need to look at... uh, uh, the boards in terms of what the boards actually will be doing. Have we got the skill sets on the board that are able to meet the regulatory requirements, the oversight requirements, the audit requirements, all the rest of these things, while simultaneously bringing in a diverse range of uh, uh, voices? People from diverse backgrounds are going to have a slightly different perspective on what a university is, what a university is for. And that speaks to me of the absolute value of having a um a diverse set of opinions and perspectives that we don't get the idea of um um a governance kind of um monoculture everyone looking at the bottom line everyone looking at compliance no one looking at everything else it needs stuff that can be challenged that can be pushed forward but for somebody in a um but for somebody coming from a uh, a diverse background uh they often could struggle to have the confidence to have the expertise in order to make a case for doing something radically different to the board. So I'd absolutely agree with um, Debbie's idea on training. I think it needs to be more proactive. I think it would need to be something that you would get as you came onto the board and as well as covering what is required from the board, it would um, 
uh, cover how to be an effective board member and to get your opinions and your points across. Now, one of Wonky's associates, James Coe, is here to tell us why you should care about COP27. So some of you remember COP26 is the UK's turn to host the summit, which promised to set the world away from irrevocable harm caused by climate change. In the end, compromise was reached with some progress reductions in global carbon emissions, but still not enough to stave off global disaster. Over the next fortnight, it is COP27, where the major debate was whether Prime Minister Rishi Sunak would attend. In the end, he did, and reaffirmed the UK's £11.6 billion commitment to a climate change fund, as well as some additional funding for research. Although this is good news, we still think there's more that can be done. To my mind, there are three big issues which should be addressed. The first is that the government downgraded its target of spending 0.7% of gross domestic income on overseas development aid to 0.5% up until 23-24. A significant proportion of this funding is allocated for climate change and biodiversity, and it would be a shame if this is not returned to the 0.7% target sooner. The second is that collaboration between businesses and universities should be made easier when it comes to sustainability. This could be a specialist R&D tax credit that gives a bonus for universities and businesses who work together on sustainability. The third issue is that the nurse review is due imminently, as we've been told over and over again. If the nurse review can find a straightforward way to suggest how universities can marshal their resources and expertise towards avoiding climate catastrophe, then it would have been a success. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Another one of Wonky's associates, Sunday Blake, is here to talk us through OFS's new guidance on sexual harassment. <laughs> A couple of years ago, the then Office of Students CEO, Nicola Dandridge, published a statement which set out the minimum effort the regulatory body expects from providers when preventing and tackling harassment and sexual misconduct within their institutions. Today, an evaluation of the initial impact of this statement, conducted independently by Sums Consulting, was published. It had very varied findings from provider to provider. Now, this is no surprise to anyone who understands the premise of voluntary action. And if we are being generous to providers, it could be reasonable to argue that between January 2020, when the statement was first published, and now there has been a global pandemic and a monumental shift to online learning within the sector, alongside two monarchs and three prime ministers. But progress on such an important issue, especially for those it impacts, has been painfully slow. Now, What this report notes is that the absence of good quantitative data prevents a wider understanding of what actually works. And an Insight report published on the OFS site today highlights the limitations of existing prevalence data sets. 
Therefore, the Office of Students are planning to run a sexual misconduct prevalence survey for the higher education sector. Now, this sort of survey is what universities you. UK were criticised for not conducting at a Women and Equalities Committee back in September. Cara Atchison, who recently chaired a group on staff-student sexual misconduct, responded to this criticism with the justification that a costly and time-consuming survey is not needed given the breadth of existing data sets on this, um, as well as the fact that we just know that sexual misconduct is an issue in higher education and we have done for some time. The NUS Hidden Marks report told us this in 2011 and staff and students, particularly female staff and students, have known this long before even then. It's also going to be interesting to see the categorisation of findings that come from this survey, how aggregated or specialised they will be, given the diversity of higher education institutions and their demographics, particularly when it comes to action in the findings of the survey into something material at provider level. This also raises the question of what exactly is consistency in this regard and how does a regulator measure it if different institutions and their demographics require different approaches. It's also worrying that other forms of harassment, which the evaluation specifically details as being overlooked as a result of the vagaries of the original statement, do not seem to be being surveyed here. Now, it's 25 years on since the Deering report and lots of debate raging about student finance, as you would expect. Debbie, talk us through it. So, Deering, close to my heart. I started off with Deering for my policy analysis for my doctorate some years ago now. So, absolutely fascinating and I would say hugely misunderstood because the top half people kind of skimmed through and seemed to take on. And then further down, the actual sort of the more detail kind of seemed to get um, sort of blended away. Um, one of the critiques I did look up a year after was the Bar and Crawford one at the LSE in 1998. And they just said, students are poor, mainly. Universities are poor. Public funding of a high quality system is possible for 5%. It is not possible for a mass system. Thus, a mass system requires public funding to be supplemented on a significant scale by private funding. And then they go into how you can be going, going around. And then they go into how this could be played out. Absolutely fascinating. And they recommend that students make a 25% contribution. So, anybody looked at the numbers today? So, for me, from all the flurry of pieces over the last few days, the Simon Marginson piece and the presentation he made at the CGHE event that I was lucky enough to listen into, that was absolutely key for me. So, uh, Deering's uh, big innovation in terms of funding, he did lots of other stuff, as Debbie's hinted at, was the creation of the idea of the income contingent loan. Uh, this was actually something of an innovation. It had not been um, done before. I mean, generally, if you take out a loan, you pay it back over a period of time. And if you happen to have lots of money, you might decide to pay back a bit more. But if you're feeling poor that month, you still have to pay back your loan. The idea of an income an income contingent loan in higher education is that it is responsive to ideally the impact that 
higher education has had on someone's career. So if somebody's um, taken a degree and have then um, gone off to have a high-flying professional career, they'll be earning quite a lot of money and they would be able to pay back the full cost of their tuition. Meanwhile, if somebody's working in a socially valuable but less well-paid uh, professional career, so something like uh, teaching or nursing or the arts, uh, they may not earn as much. So they would not pay the, um, they would not pay the entire cost of their uh, tuition, and they would not be asked to pay more than they could afford. Um, this is a huge innovation. And it meant that we could start talking about a share between a public contribution to higher education and a graduate contribution to higher education. It completely ignores, of course, the contribution of, of um, employers that actually benefits substantially. But uh, the way we went after the um, invention of this approach, we kind of doubled down on it. Um, I mean, these days even though the state still does make a reasonable level of contribution. It's not quite the 75% that was talked about in Deering. It's the uh, something more like 25 to 30% at the moment, and that's likely to go down given the changes to repayment thresholds and interest rates and all the rest of it. Um, that's likely to go down um, in the coming years. Um, that has become the sole way that people think about funding universities. The perception, even if not the reality, is that graduates pay for the whole thing. Uh, that does a number of things. That changes the conversation, as Simon Margeson says, away from the idea of public benefit through to individual benefit. So it's now quite hard to make an argument for higher education and say, well, we need to have this because it's a public good, because everybody thinks about the individual graduates and how much they own. Uh, the other thing it does, it disguises what's actually um, going on. So we're looking down the throat of a massive cut to public resource for higher education because of the way that loan repayments are, are changing. This is, you know, in the region of about half of all public funding that is going to higher education through this particular system is being lost. And in an old system, we would be up in arms in that. There would be marches, would be on the streets, there'd be even more picket lines than there are already. Um, and um, picket lines about the f f fundamental issue, which remains true, is that a lot of universities have not got enough money to run the kind of higher education that the country deserves. Uh, so yeah, a big, a big moment in sector history, and we are still hearing the repercussions now. I think the fascinating thing for me about Simon's piece is he says the present system works well for no one, not students, not graduates, not higher education institutions, not government and not the treasury. It just, it's not working for anyone. And I really like some of his positives take, being taken forward. I totally agree with you there, Debbie. That was actually something that stood out in the Mortensen piece for me because um, the system is completely broken uh, and he highlights that uh, it's not working for anybody. Um, in fact, a lot of the problems, even about regulation, all of the things we're discussing today, again, are symptoms of a system that has actually completely broken down. And where do you go from there? I mean, it's interesting about Deering. Um, 
possibly, uh, I'm interested that you actually did your PhD on aspects of daring. Um, I was heavily involved with the daring committee, as was my colleague Ian McNichol, because our boss was a member of the daring committee and we were his advisors. So we had to read everything. Um, and we got knee deep in all of the arguments, including a lot to do with the economics that came up. But the thing is about daring is it was established originally in response to a funding crisis. And here we are. Um, I think Mordenson uh, actually very accurately pointed out that it, certainly in England that after 2012, um, the whole idea of, of, of public benefit and social rate of return to higher education was, was ditched as if it doesn't exist. Um, I mean, Deering spent a lot of time going through all of the evidence for um, social and private rates of return. There was a lot of the work of Nicholas Barr was and, and had his colleagues was, was taken very seriously. But there was a definite commitment within Deering to, to the idea that, that, that higher education did have social benefit. And it would appear that the current system, certainly in England, um, is actually minimising that. Uh, again, but it's again a symptom of the system that the system has just completely broken down. And I, th- I think one of one of the one of the things endearing that they flag is that um, the access to the incentive, you know, sorry, to access fully higher education at the moment. Are we discriminating against British students because universities are going out and bringing in? international students and international student funding and so I just think that's really problematic there needs to be a better balance and you've got for that you've got to align the economics and the politics and I think that's what Ursula was talking about that's what Deering was trying to do was to really look at that in the round. Oh yes, oh yes. Deering was highly political at the time. I remember that, um, and, and 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 in fact, I, I do remember a number of members of the committee being quite angry um, on the day it was released because they felt most of the report was being ignored <laughs> on the actual day it came out. Um, but the, thi- the 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 thing is, um, the. The economics of the sector are just completely wonky. I mean, there aren't any. Completely wonky. There you go. Um, they, yeah, so, in a very bad way, not in a good way. Uh, there's no, there's no rhyme nor reason to it. And, and again, I think, I think Simon Mortensen puts his finger on, on it quite well when he talks about tweaks here and tweaks there. That, that there needs to be a fundamental rethink. And I think a fundamental rethink of the social contract that's going on here. And there has to be an acknowledgement of you know, yes, some, so, you know, graduates do, uh, as Daring concluded, they should pay something because they get private benefit, but private benefit is not the only thing coming out of higher education. Um, whether the size, the shape of the sector would end up if you actually went to fundamental, like market, proper market economics, whether it would be the same or not, I, I don't know. Just on that, by the way, people, I, I, this is something I feel quite strongly about. Uh, people talk about uh, as if the problem is driven because the universities are subject to the market. It's not. It's not a real market. It's a completely fake market. It's fixed price, administered price system. And then they tweak this, tweak that. And, and the whole thing has collapsed as a result. It's a bit like the former Soviet Union, really. I mean, if you try and centrally control everything, the whole thing will will, will fall. On that bombshell. Wow. Um, I wanted to dive in briefly to the other chunk of Deering, the bit that sits um, below the water and the stuff that... Um, um, David um, Blunkett kind of famously didn't mention in the house on the day of the the, the the release of the report. And there were lots of people that were kind of very angry with the immediate uh, focus on the level of tuition fees as opposed to all of the other sensible stuff that he did. 
Now, um, as myself and uh, Debbie are both kind of very aware, because we uh, kind of both had almost careers off the back of it, he said a lot about teaching quality enhancement. He said a lot about supporting academics to get better at um, the actual teaching component of their job and supporting institutions and developing the structure. He also said a lot about quality insurance. This came right after the ceasefire in the the uh, quality wars, the establishment of the quality assurance agency, and the idea that there would be an independent look at the systems that a provider had to make sure they were providing a high quality student experience. That's another entire chunk of Deering that we have lost entirely. And uh, it does strike me that, I mean, Deering's idea of allowing the sector to expand um, was predicated on the idea of a robust system of quality assurance that would be responsive and in actually providing evidence to say, okay, these people would like to expand. Are they able to offer a high quality student experience if they do? Because a lot of our regulation now is post hoc. We look at outputs. We look at outcomes. Uh, we are not able to see in as much um, depth whether or not students are getting a good experience in the kind of courses, the kind of providers that have uh, uh, massively expanded to meet financial needs, of course, at the moment with a f- um, a freeze in the fee cap um, and a high rate of inflation, uh, a provider has to expand its income. And that usually means expanding student intake just to stand still, just to maintain the same level of resources. So that's another lesson from um, Deering that we need to come um, back to. We need a a better and more robust and more timely assessment of quality assurance. And this has to be linked in some way to expansion. And uh, we, we, we've got to wrap this up, but I, I, I mean, given, given the huge problems that exist in the existing system and, you know, given, given the, the distance of kind of both political economic policy from the original Deering review, I just want to, I want your, your, all of yours opinions about, you know, whether we need a new one, um, someone like Ron Deering to come and take a extremely detailed look at this system. And, and if you think it's likely, do you think it could happen? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it, it is time. It, it is absolutely oh, basically essential for a complete and utter root and branch review of what's going on in higher education in the UK, not just England, but across the board, because Scotland has its own problems, particularly in relation to, um, having, having to, to, Cross subsidise heavily, and in, 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 in to support actually Scottish students. But um, I, I think I think it's essential uh, because the current system, as as Mardison point out, is working for no one. Um, everything you know, the universities are facing into all all of the, the the industrial action. But the staff staff appear to believe that the universities have the money to pay them, and I'm not sure that. The evidence is there for that at all. So there's a real problem, and I think there needs to be a, a complete and utter review, but whether it will happen, because it's a very big political challenge. But then the, not doing it is, is really bad. I definitely want it to happen. And one of the reasons I think, you know, we talk a lot about regulation, and I think this has been a fascinating, a fascinating podcast. But at the end of the day, we're educating students, they're people, they're not numbers, and there's this huge societal benefit that 
Barr and Crawford critique of Deering conclude that no student is better off than currently, many are worse off and women are likely to particularly be affected. If we look at the societal intersectionality and we start to have a look at those people that are adversely affected in today's higher education systems, it's still playing out the same thing. We've talked about this a lot on Wonk. We've talked about this time and time again. Nothing seems to be really changing. Okay, can I just can I just just quickly come in there to say to emphasise the social benefit of higher education really needs to be properly studied and taken account of. And if you take a, a proper economic approach, you can. The problem has been everybody is focusing on finance and accounting um, in the sector across the sector and not on the actual full economics, which would take account of social benefit. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on Wonky.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Acast, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Ursula, Debbie, DK and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.